Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Vertas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're delving into the realm of relationships, examining how they can impact beliefs and behavior surrounding food, as well as how relationships can play a vital role in promoting healing. We are delighted to have Catherine Garland and Vanessa Scaringi lending their expertise and experience today. Catherine is a licensed clinical social worker and supervisor in Texas, Massachusetts, and New York. Catherine spent her early career and completed postgraduate training in psychoanalytic psychotherapy in New York City. She incorporates relational and intuitive methods into her work with clients and has specialized in eating disorders over the last decade. She's worked with LGBTQIA plus teens in the New York City foster care system at community mental health clinics and at an eating disorder treatment center where she served as a primary therapist and IOP program coordinator. She is currently a field instructor for Boston University School of Social Work and with Vanessa co-owns a group practice called Calm Counseling in Austin, Texas. Vanessa is a licensed psychologist and certified eating disorder specialist supervisor and the co-owner of Calm Counseling, where she works with adolescents, young adults, and adult populations. Vanessa has dedicated much of her career to working in the eating disorder field. As a relational psychologist, she strives to understand the context of one's eating disorder and works with her clients to identify patterns and behaviors that interfere with living the life they want to live. Vanessa also strives to create a sense of hope in her clients, and she has found this is an important part of the change process. Welcome, Catherine and Vanessa. Thank so much for being here. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Well done that we gave you a mouthful to say. Yeah, that was quite an introduction. Look at all that cool stuff. It's just, I'm so excited about what we're going to talk about. And let's just dive in. Like, you know, relationships, that's an easy subject, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> relationships is this vast and complex subjects. And of course, relationships touch every aspect of our lives and they shape our emotions and beliefs and experiences. And one framework for understanding their significance is attachment theory. So for those unfamiliar with this framework, can you start us off with a brief intro to attachment theory, attachment styles, and relational therapy? And I also want to throw in my own um, my own little bit there to build us a bridge when you describe attachment theory and attachment styles and relational therapy, build us a bridge from, from attachment in, in early attachment throughout our life. I think sometimes we don't get that bridge and then it gets a little confusing. And I know you two are are going to speak to that. So as you describe that, you know, brief little intro of all of those things, I would love to to hear a little bit about that. So give us a little intro to all things attachment. Sure. So attachment theory is essentially our earliest experience keeping proximity to our caregivers and finding ways to do that, getting connected learning how to trust, learning how to rely on a consistent and loving caregiver, hopefully in the best of circumstances. And that kind of leads into the types of attachment that exist. So we talk about sort of the gold standard, the one that we're all aiming for is to have a secure attachment, right? And that's where your caregiver provided a lot of consistent, reliable caregiving and also left room for rupture and repair and that that actually builds strength within relationships for your for your parent to kind of uh, fail in manageable ways actually strengthens the bond if you can come back and get connected again then there are the the insecure attachment styles that's where you're you're kind of looking at 
an anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment, or maybe a disorganized attachment. And those are really, theorists have said different things, but those are really the main categories of insecure attachments. And when you, I think that's a great way to sort of look at talking about the bridge from how that impacts you as a little one to how that sort of turns out uh, in your larger life as an adult. Those attachment styles can be uh, an overall sort of lens at which you're sort of viewing the world and they get set up early on when maybe you're, your primary caregiver, they might have been uh, overwhelmed or occupied with lots of things outside of meeting your needs. And that can sort of look like in a child, maybe an avoidant attachment style where you're you're kind of giving the parent lots of room and trying to make sure that you don't overwhelm them with your own needs so that you can keep that proximity style. That might be, you learned early on, I have to hold on for dear life to my parents to kind of get my needs met and figure out, you know, how to, how to negotiate that. Whereas a disorganized, like we kind of describe it as sort of a mixture of things that maybe your caregiver in some ways was loving and was attempting to be there for you, but other times might've been scary or overwhelming or, um, led you to kind of have difficulty getting set in in either attachment of an anxious or an avoidant. You're kind of bobbing and weaving, trying to figure it out. And in adulthood, that obviously plays out. I think lots of people in the dating world see that play out within trying to get set up and feeling secure with a partner. Um, But then, you know, kind of sometimes in all aspects of life. I asked about relational therapy too. And I, you know, Obviously, we're talking about attachment for a reason. You know, we're relational therapists and relational therapy, the way we sort of see it and define it is um, could be someone in an academy somewhere on an ivory tower might disagree, but basically just holding the relationship as the most important thing that we're working with. Um, So yeah, we'll infuse things like skill-based, evidence-based practices, but um, always coming back to how are we feeling together? Is there something that's happening in the room, that's interfering in the ability to feel secure in the relationship and how to develop safety in discussing those things. And we strongly believe that if that um, relationship, the therapeutic relationship is secure and strong, that that translates to all the other relationships outside of out of the therapy room that might be, you know, maybe in need of some TLC and in need of uh, developing more security. That makes a ton of sense. That was a, it was a beautiful description and a, and a lovely bridge. It makes me also think why we call uh, often call our work, right? If we have a therapy practice or a nutrition practice, mm-hmm. yep. uh, along with all the other practices we might have in our, our lives that are all about, we keep working at and we keep coming back to the tenants and we keep connected to that. And, uh, I can see that sort of woven in there as well. So as we think about this kind of framework related to eating disorders, so how might this framework enhance our understanding of the factors that contribute both to the development of an eating disorder and maintenance of an eating disorder? Because we know that those sort of different time periods in somebody's life. Maybe first, how could early attachment experiences impact a person's relationship with food, their body, themselves, their sense of self? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think Kate, you had said um, early on that it's it's the attachment lens that you sort of see, you know, the world through and seeing food, you know, viewing food and your body, your relationship to your body is also just one of those ways. And so we, we talk a lot about 
food as being sort of a way to comfort or get that maybe what the caregiver might not be offering. If it's like an anxiously attached relationship, you know, finding a way to calm yourself down, not knowing how, you know, um, your caregiver is going to respond to you. Food could offer a source of comfort. The absence of food can offer a source of comfort, you know, restricting yourself, like feeling guarded and essentially restrictive in the world. There's sort of a, a sense of comfort in that. So there's this, you know, thread that's sort of woven through all these experiences, not just in relationships with people, but ultimately relationship with food and body and a, and, you know, an eating disorder sort of comes out of that. So we, we talk a lot about this as being symbolic, you know, your relationship with caregivers and your attachment style is really symbolic of how you might interact with food and your body as well. Yeah. And just to add to that, food is one of the first kind of, when you think about feeling dysregulated as a child, right. Or which is a natural experience. Like we can't always be emotionally regulated. Right. And as Vanessa and I kind of have done a deeper dive into attachment as it relates to eating disorders, there's a lot of research that really shows the correlation between an insecure attachment style, one of those, and the use of eating disorder behaviors. Um, so when you're looking at the ways in which that f- in the ways in which food can really serve to emotionally regulate, um, it really makes sense that it's it's one of the most accessible things that we have to either stay kind of embodied and help us to stay grounded um, or to avoid interacting with it to kind of numb out feelings and cope in that way. Um, so if you're struggling to kind of stay balanced, then food is, it's there. And it's, there is a lot of uh, connection to that early caregiving and sustenance. It makes me think of, and and I'm going to throw you a little curveball here and see what you think. It makes me think about the, the intersection with food insecurity mm-hmm. in childhood, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know if you've, if you've given thought to that, but I, I, you know, we've, we've spent some time recently doing some uh, education uh, sessions and some looking into the food insecurity research. It's really clear that there's a strong connection between food insecurity as a young person and an eating disorder as a older person. Uh, Where do you put that in your thinking around attachment uh, influence on eating disorder risk development? Wonder what your thoughts are there. I think that's a that, that's absolutely a piece of it, right? That's part of us feeling secure in the world, right? That our our caregiver attachments are one thing, but the environment that we're in obviously like definitely um is correlated to how safe and secure we feel and absolutely impacts our relationship with food. How how does it not if you're in a situation where there's extreme scarcity or a lack of available food? even with the best and most considerate caring caregivers, that's going to impact your overall sense of security in the world. And we saw it just so in such a pointed way during the pandemic, when there was, you know, real scarcity in food, folks doubled down on their eating disorders. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a time when we saw just a return to behaviors and a way to manage that anxiety about something that everyone was really struggling with. Yeah, absolutely. So say a little bit more about the, are there specific attachment styles or patterns that are more commonly associated with eating disorders in that uh, sort of insecure set of of attachment patterns? And how do those manifest in eating disorder behaviors and thoughts? Yeah, we we never try to be um, like super prescriptive about it. You know, we we talk about it as being these things could happen in these ways. 
Um, and like the most basic and simplistic form is um, restrict, you know, if you're restrictive in your food, you might have more of an avoidant type of attachment style just because, you know, the, the world, if you're thinking of, thinking of it as the, the lens you see the world, it's very scary, not a lot of safety and restricting food might be a way to just numb yourself out from those experiences. But also in the same way, you know, feeling like food's a crutch or, you know, maybe um, using food as a tool to manage that anxiety that that's also in there as well. And then we also talk in, in um, I think we spoke about this in our presentation at IDEP about uh, like binge purge, you know, that's kind of representative of a disorganized sort of style of just being in the world. Like sometimes I'm feeling really good and I, I didn't feel like I needed to purge or sometimes I feel like I, I was out of control and, you know, just that it undoing, doing, undoing experience, um, which is definitely the case of a disorganized attachment style. You know, you can really feel connected to someone and then all of a sudden the next day they're like, no, we're done. I want to take you in, but I'm terrified to take you in. So yeah. I have to to bring you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the, some of the really powerful moments in my clinical work have been when people have recognized like, oh, my patterns with food are a lot like my <laughs> patterns with people. It's like, true, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, it really is. Uh, it's not just about food. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we know relationships are, you know, so key to healing. That's that's certainly um, in our our program mission and philosophy. The core of of healing, we believe, is relationships. So, talk to us a little bit about the role of uh, interpersonal relationships and and or attachment figures. How do how do those what role do those relationships play in the treatment and recovery process? Well, it's huge. I mean, I think um, I hear it in all sorts of different ways, but you can't heal without community. You know, so obviously you know, every treatment center has milieu and a, the desire for that milieu to be cohesive. And there's a reason for that. It makes the experience, you know, you feel connected, you feel validated, joined in your experience. And, you know, that's why we pull families in to build a sort of healthier connection, attachment, all these different things, um, because it, you can't just healing from an eating disorder in isolation. That doesn't, I don't, I don't know of anyone doing that. You need a team, you need people, you need community. And I'm a big proponent of group therapy and long-term group therapy and really finding the people that fit for you. You know, I think obviously if you're in a treatment center, you have little to no control over that. And over time, like really figuring out what fits, what you need and finding a group to support that really a, a really good way to get that need met that might not have been there for so long. So yeah, big, big proponents of finding that. And we really saw that, you know, well, obviously, you know, we had this, this increase or uh, in people returning into um, relapse with their eating disorders during the pandemic. And it's so associated to the disconnection and loneliness that was pervasive at that time. I remember but it was actually quite recently a client of mine was talking about it. She used a term that I hadn't heard before, techno isolation. And I was like, yeah, that's so it, right? It's that we were just so, there was, you know, obviously we were doing therapy through telehealth and we were talking to our family and friends and all those things, but there was something really different about it that did feel uh, isolating. And um, in this sort of post, I don't know if it's fair to say post pandemic, or we're in this sort of moment, right? where Vanessa and I talk about, it's like we're re-entering into these relationships. It's a little rusty and a little bit, you know, road wary of like the last three years. And 
not as much of a roadmap on like, how do we do that? How do we get close again? And how that's really impacted people's relationship with food and their eating disorders. And if that was pre-existing, absolutely. Like interpersonal relationships, big piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if it, it's so, it is so fascinating, right? We had this this very unfortunate and terrible natural social experiment to be so isolated and yet be so, so bombarded by messaging about food and weight yeah. and being okay, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Right. in isolation. So, you know, it certainly reinforced the idea that if you take a little, you know, a big dose of isolation and a big dose of, of social pressure and stir it all together, particularly for people who have the the you know predisposition towards an eating disorder. Well, that's like the perfect recipe. Yeah, yeah. bad mix or worse and, than yeah. And no, no sense of um, like I think about because we still live in that world and we're all sort of still bombarded. But like we're we could be grounded in community or grounded in your people who might check you on things or call you out or like bring you like back to the moment. And there was just so little of that going on. Yeah, yeah. I think it does highlight. Sort of my my next question around the importance of of the positive impact that that family or friends can have in someone's journey, uh, to be there that real, not not digital or not you know tech based hopefully sort of real life experience with people. Do you have any any specific examples or stories you want to share that highlight the really positive impact of family or friends in someone's journey to recovery? Yeah, I mean, it's I think about um, I have this client who has recently with me started sharing frustration and anger and in a very, you know, productive way. And uh, I think that this person has been able to do that more with their friendships and how powerful that has been in their recovery and the ability to take up space and, you know, not use behaviors when they're feeling a certain way and actually be in a relationship, be in relationship with someone and feel more security and also find their voice. You know, there's all like all the symbolism with food also feels so true with body image, taking up space and being able to feel like you can, you know, not swallow your words, all these things that are symbolic. And so I think being in a relationship with me really kind of reminding them that they can say what's going on and how are you feeling towards me? Um, has allowed this person to be in relationships outside of the therapy room and be able to say like, I'm feeling this way and it's allowed them to stay in relationships better. And so their healing journey has just taken off. Yeah. That even if they're, even if they're not necessarily at a place with family where they can be that direct, that they're working it out in therapy and that's allowing for those relationships to be more resilient and tolerate like the discomfort that sometimes can come up. Yeah, it really highlights the value of that therapeutic relationship, right? In terms of being able to practice again, that practice word, that being able to to play a role in in really practicing and helping people to to address uh, attachment related issues or things that support the recovery. Can you say a little bit more about how the modeling of positive relationships in the work that you do with clients might help them to address? previous attachment issues or or perhaps attachment wounds they've experienced. How does that work? Tell us about that magic because it is yeah. kind of magic, I think. One thing that we often talk about as a success, and Vanessa and I, we have office, offices you know, like right next door to each other. So sometimes I'll pop in and say, oh my God, I have to consult with you about my client. 
and she got so mad at me today and it was so great. Like she was just so upset with me and she told me and, you know, it was like really hard and, you know, all of the feelings came up and I was kind of defensive, but then I really allowed to let it in. And, you know, we've, we've just come so far in our relationship and how that's such a sign of a secure attachment, right. That like, or a building of a secure attachment, you know, that your client feels safe enough to come and to talk to you about a misattunement and something that occurred that, you know, really wasn't as the therapist either noticed by you or your intention, or, you know, maybe you did get frustrated and they felt it in the room or, you know, that that's all part of the relationship and that rupture repair that you really, you want to see happen in childhood, because that really does build that resiliency that we're talking about, but it's not it doesn't have to happen then. It really can get built later on in life. And that, you know, sometimes it's with a really good therapist and sometimes it's with a partner, but just working on um, those skills. I, uh, an analyst who I really admire, Stephen Mitchell, who wrote a book called Can Love Last? And in the, like, I, I've given the spoiler many times, but he talks about the relationship is a sandcastle built for two that you know, you work on the relationship and you get it just right. And you make the little bridge, you do all the things. And then a wave comes in, crashes over it. And you, you know, okay, we got to rebuild it again. That, that, that's, that is relationships. It's not set it and forget it. It's not, okay, now we've achieved something and it's perfect that, that, that practice of coming back and getting connected and finding each other again, if you can learn that skill, it keeps you afloat relationships in your life the one other thing about um you know i was thinking kate you were sharing this example of uh your client side and being able to express more i also think that when the relationship is solid and there's a lot of you know history and trust there we get to also you know shine some light on to different patterns and be curious like Hey, you missed the last two sessions. Uh, wh- what's going on? Is am I seeing some of this avoidant, you know, stuff happening? And you know, if that um, again, if that relationship is solid and secure, we can explore that. Be curious about that because that you know, being able to track oh, what's happening with me probably happening in your other relationships outside of this room. Um, so that that's also part of the secret secret sauce. Uh, it makes me think of. The, um, when you're working with folks who who maybe have have different attachment styles, are there different strategies or different treatment interventions that work better or less well with individuals with different attachment styles? You sort of have a set of tools that you deploy for for somebody who has maybe more an avoidant attachment style, and, a, and another set that you use with somebody who has more of a disorganized attachment style. Any any thoughts around the treatment interventions and tailoring it to attachment style? know if it's a different intervention, but I think it's like, you know, if you, if I'm thinking about a particular client of mine who I've been working with for many years and she had a very restrictive eating disorder and was, you know, pretty avoidant of kind of intimacy and vulnerability. And just, you know, I took such small steps with her to not overwhelm her or to not expect too much uh, emotion in the session or to try to solicit too much emotion in the session and thinking about the trajectory of how kind of turning down the volume or turning up the volume, like where you need to, that that's kind of the art of therapy, right? And the art of being in relationships with people in general, um, but just how 
but I'm thinking about how much more easily she will share something very tender and emotional and share, you know, tears and, and feelings about me, you know, like, and us being able to have that experience together is something that was not allowed, you know, in her early experience of childhood. So knowing when to kind of come in with a, a stronger approach or a kind of a more gentle approach with people, depending on, you know, and a client who comes in, who's maybe extremely anxious, you might want to do a lot of soothing early on. Okay. Yeah. I'm hearing you. And I, I, it is going to be okay. And we are going to get through this, like being much more directive that might call for that sort of an approach. That makes a lot of sense. I have two, two questions as, as you were talking, I was thinking about the second one. So I'm curious to to have you speak to sort of how the relational approach to treatment, uh, how does that support other therapeutic modalities? Like how does an relational approach fit with CBT or DBT or FBT? And the second part of my question was if, if a clinician is interested in uh, using a more relational therapy approach, what kind of work do clinicians have to do first to understand their attachment experience coming into that room? Because I, I know we think a lot about how we as clinicians are showing up for clients and how clients show up in the room and how we practice that. But boy, it takes some some work on our part first, right? To be able to understand ourselves. So so two questions, you could take them whatever order you want. Like how does the relational approach support other modalities? And then if somebody's interested in this, what do they what do they have to do in preparation? Or if I'm a client, you know, looking for a therapist, what am I hoping my therapist has done before they take this approach with me? The beauty about relational th- a relational stance or a relational approach, it, there's no sort of pure way of doing that. It just, you know, the idea that you're developing a relationship, like you said, practicing over time. And um, if someone's a CBT purist and offering worksheets and homework, there's no harm in checking in with their client about, how's that going? Did, was that was that a good assignment? Like, did we nail the all the things? I forget all the things, uh, all the automatic thoughts. Um, obviously, I'm not a CBC purist. Um, but there's no, you know, there's no harm in doing anything that's complimentary. Um, you know, DBT, we, I incorporate a lot of DBT skills. And, um, and also, it really goes well with being relational, you know, trying to help someone understand their attachment, how, you know, try to, uh, encourage them to take note of how they're feeling in between sessions, maybe even call in between sessions. That's so relational um, and very DBT minded. So there's, I think it's very complimentary. I'm a huge proponent of group therapy. I think obviously, you know, we encourage uh, the therapists that work with us or younger clinicians to do their own work and, you know, their own therapy, Um, but doing your own group therapy is such a great way to build um, your own resilience in a relationship, you know, really understand your own attachment. Like, oh my gosh, I left that group so activated, so anxious, what was happening and really being able to dive into more of what happens for you so that you can sort of stay steady and weather any storm that's happening with your client. Um, Cause that's really, that's really the name of the game is if you can yourself hold on to like, this is about what's coming into the room you know, you're then such a source of safety for that person because you're not, you know, in it with them. And I mean, you're in it with them, but you're not diving into the, you know, abyss with them. That's not what they need. Right. That might be the the last thing they need, right? They need that stability and that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great piece of 
training and and ongoing consultation, right, to continue. I think that's one of the beauties of of working with people with eating disorders is that there's such richness in the in the conversations, in the relationships, and and that richness really requires a lot of good uh, consultation and support because it's it is so there's there's so much beauty in that. One of the the things we ask everybody, and so I want to I want to sort of close our time together with this and give you a little chance to think about it. Is we we hear from a lot of folks like, okay, I hear, you know, I'm somebody struggling with an eating disorder. I hear that, you know, I'd really love to improve my relationships. I'd really like to have a sense of how my early experiences with attachment influence my current experience with my eating disorder. That sounds really kind of cool, but that's not going to happen for me because it's just not going to happen for me for whatever reason. What guidance or message would you share with somebody who might be thinking that right now? That is really understandable, right? But it makes me think about this sort of, um, I think it's Anita Johnson's log metaphor where she talks about holding on to that log after the storm clears and not totally being convinced that it's that you're it's safe to let go. And I think, you know, as opposed to taking this, like maybe 15 years ago, we would treat that as like, that's resistance or that, you know, that client is not wanting to look at their ability to do this. Really like joining them in how important this tool, maladaptive as it may be, has been to stay afloat, to stay um, surviving in their reality. And Vanessa and I were just having a conversation with a colleague this morning about starting out with just being really curious. And that could be curious with yourself. Like, I'm I'm just considering this. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to like actually, you know, take it seriously right now, but I'm going to think about it and think about the ways in which maybe even just staying connected to why it feels so impossible to dream yourself into a different reality, right? Um, That it might be dangerous feeling and it might be challenging to think about your life without this particular way of being. And then maybe even fantasizing about what would it take to not need it? And how would I need to feel? That's a good start. And, and go slow. You know, I I think also encourage that um, person to just be kind to themselves and, you know, as compassionate as possible, but there's no, I mean, obviously there's a rush to work on behaviors like that, you know, obviously that's there. And the ability to improve attachments, like that's going to take a while. <laughs> and so going slow, not putting a lot of pressure on yourself and and making sure you find a team that works for you that you can see yourself sort of going slow with. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point that Vanessa and I, you know, we're in outpatient therapy and we're not working with the most acute folks, but even within the confines of something that does need to be more urgently taken care of or like addressed, uh, really allowing for the relational piece of that is let's allow for this this client, this person to be really angry, maybe that this is being taken away and really be understanding about that or really sad that this is being taken away and just how that is a very normal uh, reaction to having something, you know, have, there's a, a feeling of distress, having something that has helped you to feel safe taken away. And obviously like we can't have people be unsafe medically, but like we can leave room for them to feel safe emotionally, to feel all the feelings that they naturally would feel in that situation. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. It makes a lot of sense. It's, I think it, it's a really uh, helpful thing to think about, particularly maybe for loved ones of people struggling with an eating disorder who are like in the, understandably the sort of like, why don't you, why can't you, why won't you mind frame of why are we not doing these things? Okay. Uh, but it's not, certainly not like here, your leg is broken and why won't you get a cast on it? It's nowhere mm-hmm. near that straightforward. And so to really uh, keep thinking about the, uh, how could you, how could you think about considering trying? You're not committing mm-hmm. to it. You're just thinking about it. How could you think about maybe making that change to really take that, that step back that can feel scary if there's an immediate medical crisis. Uh, but if the, if that's mostly okay, really having that peace with yourself, if you're the person struggling or that sort of space, give yourself that gift of space and for loved ones to, to hold that with people is, is hard. I understand because people are worried right about their loved one, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's a beautiful opportunity to be in relationship with them, right. To hold them as they do that work. Well, it's been a beautiful conversation. Any, any closing thoughts uh, that we, something we haven't touched on that either of you want to share as we wrap up our time together? This was a great conversation about how messy and difficult human relationships can be, uh, but how rich and fulfilling they can be when you stick in them and or stick with them and figure them out. And this is kind of a, I think the only other piece that Vanessa and I really talk about a lot and want to sort of create more dialogue around is this world that we're living in right now really incentivizes people to stay away from that uh, kind of the the messiness of life and search for ways in which to kind of polish themselves and not have to be um, in the difficulty of these like really scary times that we're living through um, and that we're kind of encouraging the bravery and trusting that if you can stay in relationships, if you can get truly connected and really in touch with your inherent value, it is, um, it's a really fulfilling way to live and we encourage that. That's beautiful. Catherine and Vanessa, thank you both so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. If you enjoyed today's episode of Peacemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Peacemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.